Welcome back to another episode of The 10th Muse. I'm Helena. And I'm Siobhan. And this is the podcast where we talk about a unique collection of women through history that have done pretty amazing things. Yep, that's right. So from artists to activists, scientists to singers, these are not the women you already know. Instead, they're women that we think deserve more recognition and we hope that you enjoy hearing about them as much as we do. Hello everyone and welcome back to the 10th Muse. How are you doing today, Helena, in lockdown, which never is ending? I'm doing good. I'm doing, well, yeah, I'm doing as good as I can be. It's pretty miserable everywhere else apart from Northumberland. Seems to be having great weather right now, but everyone's been having (laughs) 23, 24 degrees and it's literally Mm. like 12 degrees. And, you know, the other day we were on the beach and you couldn't see more than 10 meters in front of you because of the sea mist so oh lovely yeah sea ha so yeah that's what's happening yeah. up in northumberland how about you wild times yeah um yeah no i mean we've had some thunderstorms on and off but that's about the most excitement we've had down here we are still recording out of quarantine next time we will actually be recording together we think because we um, are we moving move. in <laughs> yeah baby we're gonna move in um with a couple of people and yeah so hopefully it'll sound a bit less disjointed in the hopefully future. <laughs> yeah that would be nice wouldn't it oh man okay well for starters we'd like to start this week's podcast just by making our feelings on like recent world events perfectly clear to everyone listening we'd like to think that you know i mean we haven't exactly got the biggest listenership right now and most people who do listen obviously like know us personally and I think we'd like to think that they would know where we would stand and I'd like to think other listeners who have you know listened to those types of stories we tried to tell like know where we stand on things um but yeah we just want to make what we feel about current protests and things like that around the world clear to you all so Yeah. yeah Yeah, we um we stand with all the people fighting for equality and civil rights right now. We stand with black people and the Black Lives Matter movements mm-hmm. and with the LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. all of whom are having their civil liberties completely eroded right now across the world. And they're fighting against abominable police brutality, systemic racism and cold-blooded murder from all yeah. sides. It's one of them where you think that we've made all this progress maybe on different issues and we really haven't. And... um we you know we're coming to you I mean I'm personally like I'm a queer woman but we are both white cisgender women telling these stories and Mm -hmm. um we're very aware that you know the people we try and tell the stories of are from like a massively diverse you know background and range of time periods and all this and we always talk about how shocked we are we haven't moved on from certain things when we tell these stories but um yeah we just we completely stand with the Black Lives Matter movement and um I guess I want to add to that, like, Black Trans Lives Matter, and I know Helena agreed yeah, with me on that one. Yeah, agreed. It's, um, you know, completely horrifying. We've heard recently about the uh, Black trans woman, Dominique Remy Fells, who was unfortunately mm-hmm. dismembered, which is the most brutal crime, it, reminiscent mm-hmm. of, you know, Jack the Ripper. You'd never think that would happen in the 21st century, but it is happening because of the, the current climate of... People's liberties being taken away, racist, yeah. transphobic agendas being pushed by certain members of the political elite. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, we, we've now posted on our social media, you know, some different... We pulled together some recommendations of films and books that we've learned from over the years and we recommend. Um, 
as well as, you know, we're going to post links to petitions to sign. There's a link in our bio on all of our social media of um, places to donate. Um, we've put the website where you can split your donation between different places. Um, I recommend donating directly to Black Lives Matter as well. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, we if you go to our social media, then you should find some resources that we've kind of pulled together and we'll keep adding to them. If you have any suggestions or anything that we should read mm -hmm. or like as per usual, anyone you think we should cover on this podcast that you think it's important for us to like mm -hmm. shine a light on, just tell us because we are always open to listening and learning. And um, yeah, we just wanted to make it clear. Yeah, I just want to also say donating physical, like actual funds is not like accessible for everyone. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. completely understandable. Like I'm a skin, like we're both skin students. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many other ways you can help support, like supporting black creatives um, by watching their TV shows, their films, reading their books, mm -hmm. shopping from black stores and um, black owned like makeup companies, clothing companies, yeah. all that. Like independent businesses and things as well. Mm hmm that's like um, a direct way you can help those um, black creatives to support like sustain themselves especially in the lockdown in the coronavirus right now mm -hmm. yeah and I know as well there are you know numerous videos on YouTube you can play as well and just play on a playlist and they the advert um, revenue goes to different um, funds and Black Lives Matter causes so there's lots you can do even if you're feeling really powerless right now or you know you're at home because of coronavirus or yeah you're like skint like us <laughs> there's definitely things you can do so we've put some stuff up to let our listeners know there's a lot of different things you can do so yeah definitely um so without further ado we're gonna go mm -hmm. straight into this week's podcast uh so Siobhan is going first this week I'm really intrigued to see who you've done because you've done something yeah. that's very topical right now well it's interesting as well like coming off the back of of that I guess, um, statement in a way, um, is that, yeah, I'm kind of carrying on from our last episode. I enjoyed probably the most. We got to talk about like an LGBTQ icon, um, in Phyllis Lyon. And I wanted to, it's June, it's pride month, which is a bit lost in, in everything right now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so I wanted to sort of celebrate some, some LGBTQ people, um, throughout the month of June and give a bit of a education to our you know straight listeners I'm by no means an expert on any of this um, but I wanted to you know anything I can speak on I think it's important to be educated on different things and different issues yeah. so this week I'm going to tell you about the radical icon relentless activist and formidable leader in the fight for equality and human rights for transgender women of colour and gender non-conforming people. As writer Jamie A. Swift described her on blackwomanradicals.com um, and that's Miss Major. Have you ever heard of Miss Major? I don't think so. It's ringing um, a slight bell, but I, I don't, it's, yeah. I'm probably making that up. She's got like a huge personality and she is still alive and with us and being as like vocal as ever. She's all over Twitter all the time and, and yeah. She's dedicated like over 50 years of her life to fighting for trans women of colour and fighting to dismantle the prison industrial complex specifically wow. for trans women. In the US so, or in the UK? Uh, in the US, yeah. So Miss Major Griffin Gracie was born on the 25th of October 1940 and she's often known as just Miss Major. So that's what I'm going to refer to her as. Um, it's also worth noting, I'm going to mention later on a documentary about her and in that they say that 
she's not you know particularly precious about what pronouns you use to address her with but you know in terms of consistency and respect I'm gonna go with with she and her and and just call her Miss Major the whole way through basically cool so Miss Major was born on the south side of Chicago and she was assigned male at birth. Um, she was the eldest child of her father, Leroy Rudolph Gracie, and her mother, Edgar May Griffin. And she had one sister called Cookie, who was five years younger than her. And she has four sons. So Christopher was born in 1978 and she has three more sons that she sort of adopted into her family after meeting them in a California park. So she was kind of like, if you know anything about ball culture which I'll get onto in a minute she almost is like a mother of a house essentially Mm -hmm. so during her period of transitioning she relied on the black market for her hormones and um, she came out as a teenager in the late 1950s but she was unable to articulate her identity then because the word transgender just didn't exist at the time Mm -hmm. so you kind of could say that you felt different you could describe the feelings but that word didn't exist and um, I think it says a lot as well that the fact that she had to go to the black market for her hormones, that shows you what happens when you kind of don't provide services for trans people and you, you keep them out of healthcare. Yeah. It's it's like, you know, anything to do with, with um, healthcare and, and when it comes to fundamental human rights, like you take yeah. abortion out of the picture, they get way more dangerous. Yeah, and I was so, going to say abortion. Yeah, black market abortion. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's key to highlight right now when these... Um, you know, protections for LGBTQ people are getting like eroded as well as added to simultaneously around the world. So yeah. Um, so she experienced a lot of violence and so she often would have to have someone with her so she wouldn't be singled out and targeted when she was alone, uh, which again is is kind of a common experience, particularly for trans women of color. Mm-hmm. So she found a community and she participated in drag balls during her youth in Chicago which she described as years later as phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you sort of what you know about drag balls and like ball culture. Um, Painfully little, I have to say. No, that's literally fine. I think the, it, the drag balls and, and ball culture is kind of one of those things that I think that like gay people think that people know a lot about but it's actually so still un, like not mainstream. It's very subculture mm-hmm. and countercultural guess in a very like basic (laughs) fashion what it is yeah but like all the kind of culture around it and like actually what happened I probably couldn't tell you Mm -hmm. well that's fair enough I'm going to give you some uh, extra reading to do in a minute so (laughs) so drag balls historically and and there's a million different names for it it's um ball culture ballroom culture drag balls there's a whole range of names for it They've historically been held in pretty much every major city in the world. So in the interwar period, they were huge in Berlin and Paris, for example, where freedom to be your true self and securing your sexuality and like sexual expression was more acceptable than, you know, like Weimar Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people have heard of like how freeing and like sexually liberating that period of time yeah. was. And so drag balls were, a, were a definitely part of that. a show about um, the kind of freedoms of Weimar Germany. Uh, in Edinburgh in the Fringe two years ago I think and it was mm-hmm. great I was gonna say I bet that was incredible yeah <laughs> so it was a, a, well I mean it was a one-woman cabaret show and it was kind of mm-hmm. strange but that sounds even better yeah it was <laughs> good. just crazy I want to I want to see it so in the 1920s in the USA uh, drag balls had developed into social events and in Manhattan these balls even had like official permits and security on hand so they were very cemented in that community 
Um, by the 1960s, US, um, so again, this is another name for them, cross-dressing balls, um, evolved into the ballroom community or ball culture, which started in Harlem and in Washington, D.C., predominantly in the black community. So balls are um, divided into houses or families, which are usually led by the most charismatic figure. They're the legends of the, each family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then par- um, participants, they walk like a, uh, an imaginary runway and they're judged for their look, dance moves and realness. Nice. So realness being like how convincingly they pass as like cis or heterosexual. Yeah. Which also is known as like how fishy you are. It's like how, um, how much you pass as, you know, straight uh-huh. basically. Um or cisgendered is another way, I guess, of saying that. And um, yeah, so uh, the ballroom community is still active and it's like influenced various songs, artists, fashion, amongst like a million other things. So for example, I'm gonna obviously give you some examples that you will have heard of. So the obvious one is Madonna's Vogue, which is lift yeah. direct, lifted directly from ball culture and the dancing style. Yeah, and I, I knew voguing was from that kind of yeah. culture. Yeah, yeah. So that's like a particularly interesting element. Like people saw that style of dancing and it's it's hilarious. I mean, we in this house watched um, Paris is Burning last night, which I'm going to mention in a minute. Heard of that also. Yeah. (laughs) And they describe how like voguing in a like against each other is almost like having a knife fight but it's non-violent like you're just dancing <laughs> it's like a dance battle and that's how they would like express <laughs> themselves and like it's so cool in, in terms of like the history behind voguing and then obviously madonna's vogue made it massive in the mainstream world the entire culture around rupaul's drag race as well um again i think that's interesting because i think we think it's gone very mainstream RuPaul's Drag Race, but I, that, which it has in terms of it's now moved on to like the BBC and, and all that here in the UK. But yeah, so I mean, the runway that drag queens do at the end of every episode is essentially lifted from the ballroom scene and mm. RuPaul and the judge Michelle Visage have their own roots in the ball culture of the 1980s. So mm-hmm. like Michelle got her surname Visage from the ball scene where she's known for her voguing skills oh. in the ballroom scene in um, New York. So I mentioned the documentary film Paris is Burning. That was filmed in the mid to late 1980s and that focuses on the New York ball scene and in particular the black, Latino, gay and trans members of that scene. If you want a TV show as well, while you're in lockdown, Pose. that is so worth your time. Pose, yeah. And I couldn't <laughs> like recommend it more. I've literally recommended this to Helena so many times. I do need to watch it. It's so good. Pose is available here in the UK on iPlayer and Netflix. And it's built around this exact concept. Um, It's one of like the most real representative casts in all of television, I would say. There's like the whole house structure. It's like the ballroom that they hold the balls in literally looks like the one out of Paris is Burning. Like it's kind of Mm. to a T. You can see its influences. The ball scene and like drag balls is like a massive part of LGBTQ culture. And so that's where people find the community. And that's what Miss Major did um, in Chicago. And it's it's so important because I think over 20 years, she suffered from homelessness and participated in like sex work and theft to support herself, which is, you know, like the reality for so many LGBTQ people who have to support themselves by like any means necessary. Mm-hmm. And they find the, you know, community in events like that. So um, definitely listeners read up on that scene because it's really interesting and, and kind of integral to all lgbtq history and pride and things like that um it being pride month and all Mm -hmm. after miss major was kicked out of two different colleges for outwardly expressing her identity 
She moved to New York City and established herself within the LGBTQ community there based around the Stonewall Inn, a bar in Greenwich Village, which um, I'm assuming you've obviously heard of Stonewall. That's kind of yeah well known. Uh-huh, um, so Miss Major participated in the Stonewall riots. She commented later that it was three nights of absolute terror and also said if Stonewall would have made a difference, things would be better today. So... I think that statement's interesting because Stonewall is largely misunderstood. The perception people have of it as an event are like mostly unfounded. And so, yeah, the Stonewall riots was a response to a police raid that began in the early hours of the 28th of June, 1969. Mm -hmm. But it's not completely agreed on pretty much any aspect of it. Like who threw the first brick or if bricks were even thrown and even who was like definitely there and the reasons why they were fighting. Stonewall was not the beginning of people fighting for gay rights. It just led to the formation of the gay liberation movement and a move away from the homophile movement to a more radical take on equality. So I mentioned this in the episode about Phyllis Lyon. I mean, they were fighting for, you know, very conservative rights in terms of, it was the 50s and this was pre-Stonewall. And Mm -hmm. so Stonewall wasn't like a starting point. It was just a shift in the movement. The homophile movement were, it's very much almost like if you look at like the civil rights movement in the 60s, the way that you see Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. um, promoting like peaceful resistance and he's always wearing a suit and it's very like, we've got to get people on our side kind of thing. That's kind of homophile. And then the way it went more radical, I guess your comparison in that like metaphor for it, I guess, is Malcolm X. It's a lot more direct action, Black Mm -hmm. Panthers, that sort of thing. It's just a difference in ways of approaching the issue. They moved from trying to assimilate and it be very respectable and conservative and we just want to be sort of left alone to, well, no, we want to actively fight for our rights and be equal and Mm -hmm. like not just something that can be tolerated kind of thing. Yeah. So that's kind of one thing about Stonewall that's a bit misconstrued, I guess, by general like mainstream culture. The Stonewall Inn also wasn't some sort of kind of blessed place that gay people revered. It was this right. dive bar owned and operated by the mafia, which oh. <laughs> um, catered to the poorest and most marginalized in that community. It wasn't, there were like other gay bars in New York that LGBTQ people frequented and maybe even valued more than Stonewall. But the reason Stonewall is so historic and so important is because it's, it is, it's where people fought back that time and it was like prolonged and it's, it's a very important moment. I'm not trying to like get away from that. But I just think these are some myths that I can kind of like busting a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Slightly. So yeah, ultimately, you know, tensions hit a breaking point at Stonewall and the gay community fought back and that's why Stonewall is important and Miss Major was there. She was one of the leaders at Stonewall before she was struck on the head by a police officer and taken into custody. While she was in prison after Stonewall, she reported that a corrections officer broke her jaw oh my and God. despite continuous attempts to whitewash the Stonewall riots, she continues to this day to emphasise that the you know, it was led by black and brown transgender women who were on the front lines. I mean, there's debates whether they initiated it or, or whatever, but like they were the people who were there fighting it. And they're always been, you know, the ones on the front lines, I guess, for the LGBTQ community. And that's what yeah. she emphasizes. She's been at all these sort of key historic moments for gay history in America. So in 1973, uh, Miss Major went to a gay rally in Central Park with fellow activist and drag queen Sylvia Rivera. People might have heard of Sylvia Rivera. If not, they might have heard of her best friend, Marsha P. Johnson. Heard of Marsha P. Johnson, yeah. I haven't heard of (laughs) Sylvia Rivera. 
So Sylvia Rivera, if you if you watch the documentary on Marsha P. Johnson on Netflix, which is contentious, there's some debate about whether I should be recommending that to anyone right now, um, because the film was made, I believe, like by a white production company, but there were black transgender women attempting to make a documentary on Sylvia, and then it kind of got co-opted. I'm not sure I'm completely correct on those facts, but yeah, it's there's a debate around it, but... If you have seen that documentary, you'll have seen her. And so they were like birds of a feather, like constantly together, the two Mm -hmm. of them. And so Sylvia Rivera, she gets on stage. um, She basically jumps on stage with fellow queen Lee Brewster during a feminist activist Jean O'Leary's speech. You can see footage of this on YouTube. It's um it's like heartbreaking to watch. This speech is kind of known as her y'all know y'all better quiet down speech because she's basically calling out the gay community for not reciprocating support for drag queens and trans women. Mm-hmm. So she's saying you go to bars because of what drag queens did to you and these bitches tell us to quit being ourselves like that's something she like shouts in it. Um and like the footage is heartbreaking because she literally gets booed off stage oh by the crowd. And it's quite, you know, prophetic because today it's like still trans people in the LGBTQ community are very sidelined and very much not supported universally. In the and feminist so, movement as well, there's all these yeah. like trans exclusionary rad- radical feminists uh, who mm-hmm. believe in, you know, who, who misguidedly believe that trans women are taking away from um cis women's you know fight for their gender and stuff mm-hmm. which is completely untrue um i'd like yeah, to point exactly. out for, for that not all women menstruate and not all people who menstruate are women so yeah let's put that absolutely. out there yeah no absolutely exactly and i think they're almost a marginalized community within marginalized communities um it, whenever these issues get brought up so um yeah miss major was the when that happened, I recommend anyone watching that footage as well. So then she had a five-year sentence at Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora, where she met Frank, um, in inverted commas, Big Black Smith, that's his nickname, mm. which I just love. I just <laughs> instantly, you can just tell that he's like this big character. Yeah. And um, he participated in the Attica Correctional Facility riots of 1971. And so the two of them communicated regularly while she was in prison and he showed her great respect despite her gender identity. Mm -hmm. And he talked her through the information that she needed to really help her community. So when she left prison in 1974, she had a new hope for like the LGBTQ, specifically trans community, and a dedication to fight for prison reforms, particularly for trans women imprisoned in men's prisons, which is a huge issue to this day, I guess. In documentary I'll talk about in a little bit later on she talks about it's it's this amazing clip you can see it even in the trailer for the documentary and she's like she doesn't want it to be even be like LGBT whatever it is it's like you put the T first because the T is like that's what got anything moving forward and so they're the people you should be fighting for and so she made it her mission to fight for trans women specifically who are imprisoned she moved to San Diego in 1978 and she organized community efforts and grassroots movements. She worked at a food bank and provided direct services for trans women who were incarcerated, suffering from addiction or homeless. And sort of bear in mind that when she was there, that's when the AIDS epidemic hit. Right. And so she, yeah, so she provided additional healthcare and funerals. 
and then she moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in the mid-1990s, where she served on multiple HIV AIDS organizations, including the Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center. So she's literally on the front line of that historic moment as well. Yeah. She's helping, you know, victims of HIV and AIDS. And then in 2003... She began serving as the executive director of the Transgender, Gender Variant, Intersex Justice Project. Get that all out. That's a mouthful. So, t- yeah, big mouthful. So the TGIJP. Um, the TGIJP is a non-profit organization working to end human rights abuses against trans, intersex, and gender variant people, particularly trans, uh, particularly trans women of color in California prisons and detention centers. Mm-hmm. This is this is like an interesting fact about that organization. So she's not in the um, in the same position with them anymore, but they're still active today. And in 2016. TGIJP joined Black Lives Matter in withdrawing from the San Francisco Pride Parade in protest of increased police present at the event. Wow. So they were saying, you know, police shouldn't be present, walking in a Pride Parade, being there, so they withdrew from marching in that parade. Yeah. Which I just think is interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I think that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, her ultimate aim sort of as a survivor of the prison system herself is for the prison industrial complex in the USA to be dismantled and completely uphauled if not like abolished Mm -hmm. so you've got to bear in mind that in the USA going as far back as the 13th amendment in 1865 black people have been disproportionately imprisoned and when you compound that with being trans then the treatment is just like disgusting for anyone who doesn't know what the 13th Amendment is, that's the amendment that sort of supposedly ended slavery. Supposedly being the key word. Supposedly being the key word. It, if you look at the wording of it, it, it basically says, you know, they abolished slavery, but except in punishment for a crime. So then if you look at the way that the American prison system set up, basically then black men and women, but particularly black men, were being... Um, disproportionately arrested and sent to prison for crimes that they didn't even like commit at all which is still happening today if you read up on it you know it was a lot more a particular big spike was um rape allegations against black men Mm -hmm. by white women and that sent a hell of a lot of black people to prison where they you know would work um for free there aka they were still in slavery so yeah it's very you know interesting that you know supposedly slavery ended at that point but it, it i think it ended in name only really mm-hmm. in a 2018 interview miss major said and so here's a quote which which kind of sums up why she's fighting for that change for specifically trans people in prison so she said how we get treated in prison is just as just as ab- abhorrent as they treat us on the outside. The difference is that inside of prison, there is no one to hold accountable, no one to yell help and have a response. And the abusers are tantamount to being murdered and still being alive. So you're kind of like a zombie in there. They can do what they want to you and they don't have to answer to anybody. Some of these prisons are so far off the grid that they can kill you, take you out into a field, bury your ass and no one even knows you were there. Oh my God, that's horrific it's like that it's the interview just kind of shook me to my core that one yeah that's a huffington post interview as well um which i'll put the link to in the in the episode description there's a couple um articles that i read researching this that i'll put in there but that in particular that interview is well worth a read so in 2015 she was the subject of a documentary entitled major 
which focused on her life and leadership, which I'm going to plug because I think it's well worth a watch. Um, you can actually watch this documentary for free throughout the month of June um, on Vimeo with the promo code, all in capital letters, Stay Strong 2020. So if you are interested in her and her life and, and everything I'm trying to sort of sum up here, then please go and watch that because that does a better, far better job than what I'm doing right now. Miss Mage is still alive. She's still fighting for justice and equality today. She's 79 years old and she is just still fighting for equality, which says a lot because I think people think we have these major moments in time and major peaks of movements like Stonewall or, um, you know, the civil rights movement or whatever. And then that's, you know, every issue solved and it obviously isn't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. She said, I think she summed it up best here. So in that interview with the Huffington Post in 2018, I'll end on a quote as usual. She said, if Stonewall would have made a difference, things would be better today. If the civil rights movement had been a success, black people wouldn't be 85, 90% in prison. So the things that were still are. Powerful. And yeah, I cannot sum it up any better than the woman herself there. So mm. yeah, that was um, kind of a summary of Miss Major. If you start reading into you know, all the different initiatives to do with prisons and, and like trans rights and things. I mean, she sends like money to trans people in prison for their like meal cards and like the, you know, the prison bank accounts and things. And, mm -hmm. and you know, she'll be questioned being like, why are you doing that? Like, you don't even know these people. And she's like, well, they're trans, they're like me. And then that that's all that she needs to know. Because um, I assume as well, a lot of a lot of the trans people, you know, in prisons, they won't have a family system behind them to, mm -hmm. to like pay into the these mail cards yeah. and things yeah no absolutely not I think I think it's underestimated or at least it's maybe not known as wide like sort of mainstream that LGBTQ community has like a found family if you're lucky enough to have your sort of family you were born into or your biological family yeah. whatever support you then that's amazing but more often than not you know people have to make a family around them and friends and if you've not got that or if you're you know, unfortunate enough that in life you end up in prison or, or whatever it is, then you kind of can be quite like on your own. Um, and yeah, she's just this incredible woman who won't let that happen to people. She'll like support them. And yeah, she's been through it herself and she'll tell you how bad it was. I think what I like about her, is she's just very no bullshit. Like she's very straight shooter. She'll just tell you exactly how it is. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I can't recommend that documentary more. There's a million stories like this out there of, of you know, LGBTQ people, specifically trans people, who have made it, these incredible impacts in the world. And like, this is just one story yeah. of all of them. You know, I hope to cover more of them while we as we go through the podcast. But I think her story is very timely right now as well. Um, don't think that's not lost on me. I think, yeah. you know, I wanted to do LGBT people throughout this month and um, this was the, she was the first one that kind of came to mind when it, when you're thinking about the, you know, setting that we're talking about this in. Go watch the documentary, follow her on Twitter. She's, yeah, I definitely She tweets will. all the time. <laughs> and yeah, and I'll link those articles um, and the link to that um, documentary below as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, imagine. She'll listen to it and go, well, I think actually you did a bit of a crap job there, <laughs> I actually... Better look next Way time. more of a badass than you've made me sound and um, you missed this, this and this. I think she'd have a lot to say. Yeah. Um, I don't know How if I want to incur Miss Major's wrath. I think she'd uh, I think she'd wipe the floor with me. Huh. She's 79 years old, or years young. Years young. And she's, yeah, an amazing, amazing person. Wow. And um, 
really interesting that's my 10th muse for this week amazing i love that it sounds really cool as I, I mean as you say like if you have some knowledge of like the stonewall riots and lgbtq rights movements in the u.s i think you'll know of marsha p johnson but mm-hmm. beyond that if you're not like i wasn't aware of um, any of these other people so yeah it's always good to find out more and to know more names about it mm-hmm. thank you i enjoyed yeah. that you're welcome i'm glad you liked it just a little disclaimer, listeners, there's uh, someone mowing the grass very loudly, so I apologise in advance. I didn't even say that I'm in the most echoey room of this house. Yeah. Um, Our sound issues are not not good. Not great. We're going to find the quietest possible place to record when we move in together and it'll be... This audio quality will skyrocket. I bet we'll end up being in, like, the bathroom. <laughs> like, we'll be like in the bath. In a in a like one of our cupboards with like a duvet over us to muffle our noise or something like literally in the <laughs> the weirdest setting. So my muse this week is a Kenyan environmentalist who has been multiple firsts throughout her life, and oh she believes wholeheartedly that conservation and human rights were intertwined, and here, here. Uh, she fought for these issues on a global scale. Hmm. I. I'm completely enamoured with this woman. I've started reading about her and there's just more and more and more because she's like a fascinating woman. My muse is a woman called Wangari Matai and she was born, as I said, in Kenya. She was born in a rural highlands area called Nyeri in 1940 under colonialism. There's not much about her childhood online. Um, She was taught by Catholic missionaries, but that's kind of about it. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the information starts when she went to college. She went to college in the US, in Kansas, called Mount St. Scholastica College in 1964 and got a degree in biological sciences. She earned a master's of science from the University of Pittsburgh in 1966. And she got these degrees in the US while the civil rights movement was going on as well, which Mm -hmm. she took everything that she learned and experienced back to Kenya with her and says that it made her believe in the importance of the fight for civil and human rights while she was learning about biology and science and the importance of that as well. Mm -hmm. And she didn't stop there, though. So she has two degrees so far. That's two degrees and counting. (laughs) She completed her doctoral studies in Germany and the University of Nairobi, where she earned a PhD in 1971. This made her the first woman in East and Central Africa to earn a doctorate degree. So that's the first kind of first that she did. Right, okay. She stayed in the University of Nairobi and taught veterinary anatomy. And by 1976, she was the chair of the veterinary anatomy department. And in 1977, became an associate professor. She was the first woman to become chair of a department at the University of Nairobi. So that's the second first. Right, we'll keep in tally, okay. Yeah. Over the next 11 years, from 1976, she was also very active in the National Council of Women of Kenya becoming its chairman between 1981 to 1987. She initially joined to protest against discrimination against women from the university, representing the Association of University Women. Mm -hmm. But while preparing for the first UN Women's Conference that was going to be held in Mexico, there was like a, a group meeting with all the women from Kenya on this conference. And she was struck by the Kenyan women's stories and because they were complaining about how they were asking for water, food, 
energy from firewood and saying that they had no income Mm -hmm. and she completely forgot about her own agenda she'd initially been going in to protest and up against you know discrimination in the university setting but she thought their basic kind of needs were way more important they were from the same areas of the kenyan highlands as she was from and yet right um in only 10 years or so the place had completely changed because the trees had all been cut down to make way for tea and coffee plantations. So this mm. led to more soil erosion and no firewood for the women, a lack of nutritious fruit and dirty water in the rivers and wells. The soil erosion is also quite important because it's something I learned on the podcast that she featured on, a great podcast called On Being with Krista Tippett. She realised that the trees, and particularly the fig trees in her hometown, they help to conserve mm-hmm. the ground and protect them from landslides because they are all up in the highlands area. And it brought water from deep in the earth to the topsoil, which made it better for fertilising and growing plants. So trees were a very key aspect of this. And when they were all cut down for like global infrastructure and economic gain, mm-hmm. it meant for the women who lived there, it caused a lot of problems. In that podcast, she says, if you're going to do anything for the environment you have to see what's been disconnected so it was all about links what had been disconnected from the landscape and that's how she kind of went on further so because of that while she was on the council she introduced the idea of community-based tree planting in 1976 that's a key kind of aspect of her um, philosophy and her work and she developed this into broader grassroots organization who focused on planting trees with groups of women in order to conserve the environment and improve their quality of life. And actually through this Greenbelt movement, she assisted women in planting more than 20 million trees on their farms and on schools and church sites. Whoa. She started with seven trees. She said that five of them died and two of them (laughs) remained. So it's, it's really, it's amazing when you think about that. Her first book, called The Green Belt Movement, Sharing the Approach and the Experience about the history of that Green Belt mm-hmm. Movement was released in 1988. In 1986, though, this Green Belt Movement established a pan-African Green Belt Network with 40 people from other countries in Africa. So other countries that launched similar tree planting initiatives include Tanzania, Uganda, Malawi, Lesotho, Ethiopia and Zimbabwe. So, you know, a massive boost getting these other countries on board as well yeah yeah and um have you heard of the search engine ecosia ecosia um i mm, is that the one i mean guessing off the based off the story is that the one that plants trees yeah yeah i think i have heard of that i think yeah basically what happens is um it's only it's been kind of published or like broadcast a bit more over the last kind of five years or so but basically Mm -hmm. when you use a search engine it plants trees and it's actually partnered with this green belt movement that wangari matai set up which is amazing so crazy yeah that's so it's something that a lot of people might have heard of but like i've yeah i've not heard of wangari matai before Mm -hmm. so she's been internationally acknowledged for her work for democracy human rights and environmental conservation and has spoken at the un a few times speaking on behalf of women and has worked to combat aids in africa And she's served on the board of various organisations and commissions, such as the Commission for Global Governance and the Commission for the Future. She's served Mm -hmm. on the board for the UN Secretary General's Advisory Board on Disarmament, the Jane Goodall Institute, 
Women and Environment Development Organization, Green Cross International, among many others. This was like oh my God. a shortlist. She's done so much. This was Can you all just imagine a CV? <laughs> like <laughs> all at the same time. All at the same time. She's oh my a, a God. powerhouse. She's amazing. Yeah. I kept reading and being like, what the hell? And I was like checking back <laughs> on the dates because it's all at the same time. Yeah. And it's amazing. That's ins- I could like I can't I couldn't do it. It's too overwhelming. Oh wow. Um it takes a special person to do all of that. Yeah, absolutely. In nineteen ninety two, Matai was arrested by the Kenyan leader Daniel Arab Moy for allegedly spreading malicious rumours about a coup by Moy. But Matai's son, Muta, says the coup was rumoured to be planned for January the eleventh, uh, nineteen ninety two. And that her name was on a list of 144 people who were to be arrested or killed. And the government denied this rumour. So it's just, I think because her attitudes and her outspokenness was so subversive and Mm -hmm. she was protesting against a lot of the discrimination at the time, like the society in Kenya was quite conservative. And at the time um, she joined the University of Nairobi, actually, there was only two of them. And then a third woman joined later and there was like no provision for female academics. So that's why she wanted to initially combat that discrimination. So that was in 1992. In September 1998, she launched a campaign of the Jubilee 2000 Coalition and took on a role as co-chair of the Jubilee 2000 Africa campaign which sought the cancellation of unpayable backlog debts of the poor countries in Africa by the year 2000. So a lot of these backlog debts would have completely bankrupt a lot of the poorer countries and basically made them Mm -hmm. completely unviable to survive. And she campaigned to just cancel the debts so they would be able to survive and kind of rebuild Mm -hmm. themselves. And uh, she also campaigned against land grabbing and reallocation of forest land. Mm -hmm. But wait, there's more. Oh my god. So she represented the Tetu constituency in Kenya's parliament between 2002 and 2007, where she won a whopping 98% of the vote. Whoa! When have you ever heard of like that sort of statistic in like politics? What? I know. Um, Okay, so like she's likeable and they they all support her then. Yeah. And you can kind of tell, like, so on that podcast I mentioned. Mm-hmm. she's so warm and like funny yeah. and she just laughs and you can just tell she's like one of those kind of people that's quite like gravitational yeah and you know having listened to her speak I'm not surprised she won that much of the vote and she really yeah. fought for like the people's like rights to like land and also mm-hmm. to provide practical ways of improving their um yeah their like living conditions through planting these trees it's such a simple thing and mm-hmm. you know a sustainable action as well so yeah she's amazing yeah um so she also served as an assistant minister for environment and natural resources in kenya's ninth parliament so that's between 2003 and 2007 in 2005, she was appointed the Goodwill Ambassador to the Congo Basin Forest Ecosystem by the 11 heads of state in the Congo region. And this is kind of her big commendation, her big, like, amazing achievement in her life. So, On top um, of everything else. On top of everything else. <laughs> yeah. This is the, the third first. Um, while she was still in Parliament, right. 
she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004 for her contribution to sustainable development, democracy and peace. And the committee stated that she stood at the front of the fight to promote ecologically viable social, economic and cultural development in Kenya and in Africa. She has taken a holistic approach to sustainable development that embraces democracy, human rights and women's rights in particular. She thinks globally and acts locally. And that's by the Norwegian Nobel Prize Committee. So she wow. was the first black woman to yeah. be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004. Oh my God. In 2004. Let's just, let's just take a second. I know. <laughs> in 2004. But no, that's insane. That's like, oh yeah. my God. Like, just on top of everything else. Oh, in addition, she has a Nobel Peace yeah, Prize. Yeah, she's incredible. Um, that's so cool. I actually like... As I, like, say this and as I think about it even more, like, I think because I'm so invested, like, I actually get a little bit emotional. That's good, though. That's, like, that's... I know. I'm, like, I just... Of, like, some I just of these wanna... women is, like... Ah, they're yeah. So, they're just inspiring and, like, just so cool. I, you know, I completely agree with what you're saying. And, like, I, I think what gets me is that, like, it shows that you you can make change by doing, like, really small acts. She's just planting trees because she yeah. knows that's what means that like it will help the soil to to stay like rooted and it'll help to bring more water to these women and that means that they have like clean water they have firewood they have figs and fruit to support their diets so their children Mm -hmm. won't go hungry and they're not walking like miles with firewood on their backs because the firewood is like in their gardens now and it's just amazing Mm -hmm. it's such a small thing and i think everyone needs to take kind of a leaf out of her book yeah absolutely Matai was also listed on UNEP's Global Fall of Fame and was named one of the 100 heroines of the world. In June 1997, Wangari was elected by Earth Times as one of 100 persons in the world who have made a difference in the environmental arena. Mm -hmm. She's also received honorary doctoral degrees from several university institutions around the world so from williams college in massachusetts usa hobart and Mm -hmm. william smith colleges in 1994 university of norway in 1997 and yale university in 2004 oh my god i know that's mad she's like i've already got a million degrees yeah i know myself (laughs) she's got more framed like i know (laughs) it's so insane in 2007, she released her autobiography, Unbowed, and in 2009, she released a book called The Challenge for Africa, which criticised Africa's leadership as ineffectual and urged Africans to solve their problems without Western assistance. So I think if we mm-hmm. look back to the way that, you know, she campaigned against the, the backlog debts, I think there was some... Um, I, d- I don't know when the debts were from, like, other countries in Africa or if they're from the West through, like... The colonial history mm-hmm. but I, I think she kind of viewed the reason they were in debt is because the west had like offered their help but as a way to kind of um profit off them in the future yeah and she said you know we can solve these problems by ourselves without mm-hmm. this uh, by doing like kind of basic groundwork grassroots solutions yeah so throughout her life as well, she was also a frequent contributor to international newspapers such as the LA Times and the Guardian. Unfortunately, in 2011, she died of ovarian cancer and there were tributes to her all across oh. the world. And um, she features in, there's a, a book that came out a while ago 
called Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Have you heard of that? Uh, no, I haven't actually. I don't think I have. I've not read it, but I, I, I've I like seen it and stuff. It's one of those books that's often in like gift shops or like museum gallery bookstores yeah. and things. Um, and it's just about like a hundred women who changed the world. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, she's one of those 100 heroic women that featured in that. And it's like all for... Yeah. It's all aimed at young girls to kind of teach them about women who've changed the world, which is a fantastic yeah. book. I really want yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know what to get Helena for her birthday, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's Christmas <laughs> coming sooner. Um, yeah, I'll get it for Christmas. <laughs> she's amazing. Um, I would thoroughly urge everyone to listen to this podcast, which like will also include, because she talks so energetically and in depth about sustainability about Mm -hmm. um the problems that women in kenya were facing and about how she established the green belt movement yeah and she's just amazing like she's she's so funny and warm and Mm. yeah it's brilliant it's really interesting to think about how her catholic history intersects with her like people's culture um, mm-hmm. the Kikuyu culture, and talks about how there are lots of teachings in the Bible that talk about how you should yeah. protect certain plants or trees or bits of nature. And she talks about how that actually kind of comes from a practical sense. Because mm-hmm. um, her there's an anecdote, her, her mother used to tell her not to cut the fig tree down when she was searching for firewood because it was a, a godly tree, it was a holy tree. Mm-hmm. And she says in practicality it's because the fig tree you know held its roots so deep and brought a lot of water to the soil and they would they would live for like so so long they live for years and years and years and they'd eventually just fall on their own once they died but the figs would fall so the figs were really high in fiber and also um they're a really good staple of the diet and it meant that it protected them from landslides and helped Mm. to irrigate the soil and bring cleaner water um to the wells so she says how a lot of the religious teachings kind of come from that practical sense and it's yeah. really interesting when you think of it like that because yeah like no, if, if you're a bit of a religion skeptic like myself you might think some of the teachings about you know this thing is a, a holy thing this thing is is a you know a religious mm. kind of icon if it's like something to do with nature or yeah. But like to hear her talk about how it comes from a practical sense, like I completely understand that now. Yeah. I think a lot of stuff's like that in terms of, yeah, in like religion, it, it, it a lot of it's things that couldn't be explained when those sort of religions were founded uh, have like such a scientific basis yeah. now. And that, yeah, like it's things like that, like linked to nature. I like that. I mm-hmm. think that's amazing that she's like articulated that yeah. as well. If you think about, you know, way back in, as you said, when religion was first kind of being founded or developed or you know when the bible was first written Mm -hmm. and they as you said like because of the science has developed and we can articulate the science now if you think like these communities they would say they would have fig trees or a tree that did something equally as well as a fig tree and say you know they'd been protected from landslides for so long and the first time you cut a fig tree down and then you shortly after you have a landslide you're gonna think that that's like something from the gods because the gods were upset that you cut down this fig tree so it's kind of understandable yeah um but Mm. yeah she's she's a fantastic woman and you know truly amazing she's done like 
podcasts and mm-hmm. her books. I really want to read her autobiography. Um, and I think she talks in her like Nobel Prize commencement speech as well about the importance of, you know, the environment and this. She talks about her Green Belt movement. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's something that a lot of environmental movements have um kind of come from is that like if you think now like so many environmental movements they're all about like planting trees and Mm. you know reforesting like the rainforests in south america Mm -hmm. and protesting against deforestation she like understood how important trees were for the environment Mm. and it carries on her like her work carries on through to today so that's why yeah she's my muse i love her so much the fact that she literally was like so groundbreaking, she's got multiple firsts to her name, all these degrees. I love that all those different unis just gave yeah, her more degrees. I know. That's so powerful as well because you you say like she was from was it it was Kenya, yeah? Yeah, so she's from Kenya, yeah. Yeah, and but then she's studying in like America and like, you know, Europe and that's a big testament to how smart she was that she could yeah. get on and go and do these other programs and like bring all that knowledge back and then redevelop her own country and be like, you know, we don't need the western help, like we can do this ourselves and she knew yeah. how to root the science in and you know, it just that's that's just a massive testament to obviously how smart and like yeah. amazing she was. She sounds so interesting. Like I'd love to be able to speak to her. That's so like I know. Interesting. I know. I'm gonna have to listen to all these podcasts that oh, you're, it's, it's you're talking a, it's about. It's like amazing. It's a really insightful podcast. Um, and mm-hmm. the the podcaster she puts on the edited version, but also the unedited version. So I'm intrigued to listen to the unedited wow. version yeah. as well. Well, we'll put all the links to like the podcast that Helen has mentioned and the documentary and everything we've kind of said we will um, in the description for this episode. Yes. And then you can all um, do your own further reading and listening and stuff. But I'm definitely going to listen to that podcast. I might try and find it today. So yeah, I think that's pretty much all we've got for you guys this week. Yes, Um, we do. We will have a mini muse next, I guess. Yeah, I think so. The next one will be a mini muse which we'll be recording together and living together. In the together. same room. Yeah, that'll be fun. We're um, very excited. Hopefully. They'll be really excited. As usual, keep in touch with us on social media. As of when this comes out, we'll have been sharing stuff for this past week. Yeah. So mm-hmm. take a look at all those. We'll try and share as yeah. many resources as we can because, yeah. as I said before, that is a key way to support black people trans people you know marginalized communities is to support the work that they do because if there's demand yeah. for it there'll be more supply yeah absolutely that concept just comes down to everything i mean we're, we're sharing some films that we think you know have influenced us or tv shows that have educated us and things like this but you even it's as simple as even watching things like um like black panther with marvel yeah. like there's a demand there for you know black content and they made a a film that was just all purely that culture and if you you know that was a massive smash hit but like if that's the the energy you need to bring to everything like if you show that you support those sorts of projects and those sorts of projects get made for people who aren't they're in the marginalized communities and i think that's really key so yeah we'll share we'll have shared a load of resources already please engage with them let us know if we've missed anything obvious or you recommend some other stuff we'll put up another post with like listener recommendations or something so follow us on socials get involved and um, you can always email us at 10thmusepodcast at gmail.com as well we will get back to you 
we will see you all next time see you all very soon hope you enjoyed see you later see you later bye bye